0: Welcome to China Perspectives, a podcast on economic and credit developments in China, featuring experts from within and outside of Fitch Ratings. My name is Andrew Fennell, Fitch Ratings' lead sovereign analyst for China. Today, I'm pleased to introduce Mr. Charles Lee, who frankly doesn't need much by way of introduction for many listeners, particularly those in Hong Kong. But for the sake of completeness, I'll venture to do so regardless. Charles served as the chief executive of Hong Kong Exchanges and Clearing Limited between 2010 and 2020. During his 11 years in office, he orchestrated some of the most significant strategic initiatives in HKEX history, including the launch of the Shanghai Hong Kong Stock Connect in 2014, the Shenzhen Hong Kong Stock Connect in 2016, and the Bond Connect in 2017, which we recently did a separate podcast on. Prior to joining HKEX, he served as chairman of JP Morgan China. And if you go back far enough, you'll also be interested to learn that he worked as both a lawyer and a journalist earlier on in his career. Charles, thank you so much for taking the time to join the podcast. And with the pandemic situation quite stable here in Hong Kong at the moment, I'm also delighted that we can do this in person. Thank you, Andrew.
1: I'm really looking forward to it. I've
0: not done a podcast yet. Oh, really? uh, This will be the first. Okay, exciting. So so today we're here to discuss a topic that might come as a bit of a surprise for some of our listeners, uh, which is your new venture, which is focused on China's SME sector. After leaving such a prominent role at HKEX, I imagine there were probably a variety of opportunities and paths uh, for you to harness your experience and talents. Uh, and that choosing the right one was probably more of a process of elimination than anything else. So maybe just to kickstart why did you decide to focus your efforts today on a venture targeting China's SME sector?
1: Yeah, I think um, you know, having worked at uh, the central marketplace like Hong Kong Exchange and looking at how the entire financial market operate, I have become increasingly concerned that our market has become so top-heavy and so kind of self-consumed Trading, you know, we have about 2,000 companies listed in Hong Kong Exchange, probably 1,000 have real big enough of a business, and there's only about 500 that has any real trading. And at the top, maybe 50 companies take up almost close to 80% of the trading. So we are largely become a trading market, and um, I don't really know whether sitting up there, money is actually dripping down to the real economy. And I you know, increasingly felt that we were probably just all becoming a self-consuming cycle of finance, and I wanted to find ways to see whether we can be much more touching down. And also, I felt that uh, we've been using technology of the last century or the last generation. Wall Street has not really fundamentally embraced new technology digitalization yet, And I felt that China's economy, the underlying economy, is so digitalized that I wanted to find a way to see whether we can connect high finance with the real economy down in the soil, but using digitalization and new technology as a way for us to bridge
0: that gap. Okay, great. Very keen to hear about the venture itself, but before we do so, I think it might be helpful to start with a few building blocks, which is your brief diagnosis of why SMEs are so important for China's economy.
1: Yeah. I think, uh, first of all, when people talk about SMEs, we are, I'm much more talking about not even the medium. It's the small and the micro. We're really family-owned businesses. People... businesses that are mom-and-pop shops that you actually have to work for a living. That really is the foundation of China's economy. The statistics are all over the place in terms of how large it is because simply, you know, how do you define? But almost consistently, this sector represents probably the most vibrant sector of China's economy and um, broadly contributing close to 60% of the GDP and uh, close to 80% of the employment and uh, probably 50-some percent of uh, tax revenues. It's really uh, the most important sector and is the most underserviced sector from a financial services perspective. And it also has the, the most to do with um, people's lives every day. And because behind every small little company, a little entrepreneurial setup, it's a family of people who are trying to improve their lives. And there's also, this is a sector that actually has a lot of growth,
0: huge amount of growth. And it's just uh, has never really been tapped by traditional high finance. Well, thank you. In preparation for this podcast, I was uh, actually going through some external reports and I stumbled upon one from Ping An. And I hadn't seen this phrase before, but there's apparently a famous phrase called 56789, which yeah. is that these uh, SMEs provide 50% of the national tax revenue, generate more than 60% of GDP, account for more than 70% of the patents, and create 80% of the urban employment and 90% of the new workforce. So clearly with those statistics in mind, it's, it's really no surprise that uh, this is an important focus for policymakers and frankly, uh, an important focus for you these days. Yes. And I...
1: I have seen it that way, and I think it's a good way of really articulating the broader potential of the sector.
0: Okay, so maybe pivoting now to MicroConnect itself, what are your main goals for this venture? And and maybe briefly how you think it might tie into the government's ongoing efforts to support uh, the SME sector in recent years?
1: Yeah, I think uh, our walking in proposition uh, hypothesis is that uh, this sector has not been traditionally serviced by finance, but they have huge growth. And uh, the returns from this sector with such a diversification and an uncorrelated exposure should be something that investors, absolutely institutional investors, should really be lo- looking for. But on the other hand, it's a blue ocean that has never really been uh, you know, effectively conquered by uh, global institutional investors. So this vast gulf between capital and this opportunity is such that uh, we fundamentally ask, why has that been the case? Institutional investors have increasingly running out of yield uh, on a global scale. And uh, with monetary policy the way it is, I think that will continue. But meanwhile, you have this great sector that could bring that kind of a great, I mean, be denominated, high growth returns. Why is that possible? I think uh, the Gulf, At least conventional wisdom would tell us that uh, there are three key major reasons why such a wide gulf existed. One, very difficult to run a transparent investment scheme of small little companies on a cost-effective basis. Two, they're all over the place, so it's very difficult to run um, a cost-effective way, to find a cost-effective way to find them. And three, they're so diverse, it's very hard to find a uniform, standardized product that fits the most of them. I think those are fundamental obstacles. But I do believe that today, digitalization of China is finally allowing us to potentially take the massive dividend and build a bridge between that. So that's really why we're here.
0: Maybe one policy-related question for you as a follow-up, which is that, you know, as an economist, I've been reading reports by many regulators, including the PBOC. You know, they're clearly worried about the credit allocation to China's SME sector. Why do you think it's been so hard for China's SMEs to access mainstream capital, including through bank lending?
1: Yeah, I think... uh, uh we talked about the three obstacles already lack of transparency, difficult to reach in numbers, and also lack of standardized product. But I think the traditional conventional way of financing the, this sector has historically been all through credit. We believe that's the wrong starting point because uh, credit is not a product that is fit and proper for the small little guys, number one. Number two, Credit is not the right tool from a institutional investor or from a, a, the bank perspective for this sector. For the simple reason, one, for the little guy, their business is so diverse, but credit product are still very rigid. You still have to pay back the principal, pay back and, and the interest on a reasonably rigid schedule, even though you could have innovations and others make it easier. But fundamentally, you need to get your money back with your interest payment, But the little guy could really go through all sorts of volatilities through his life. If a restaurant has its road digged up in front of it for two, three months by the local government, Business is going to dry up for three months, but, and you won't have any money. Or some family members is sick and are hospitalized, and they could shut down for a few months and just to take care of family. So a lot of those very unique and diverse cases of SME simply just means that credit product to them sometimes is precisely the wrong product at the precisely the wrong time. But from a funding perspective, this is also not a very great product credit because your upside is capped at the interest rate. But your downside, that means that your tolerance level for the downside is very limited. Because you, if your NPL is anywhere close to 5%, the whole business you know, is going to run into the ground. So we fundamentally believe that a key starting point is to beef up the little guy's equity balance sheet first before we can give them a lot of leverage, not the other way around. So therefore, our first key building block of this bridge is to find the right product for them. So our product is uh, equity in essence, meaning that if you make money, I will make money. If the little guy does not make money, I don't make money. If the little guy failed, it's my failed investment. So from a little guy's perspective, this capital has to be permanent capital, has to be very friendly, has to be almost like a family and friends kind of a capital that doesn't really take it out precisely when you really need it most. But most importantly, from an investor's perspective, an equity essence product means that the shop ratio begin to work. The the big numbers start to work because your upside is not limited. Even though those little guys are not really, they're restaurants and barbershops and mechanics, they're not really like a big VC uh, type of invested companies that can go up a hundred times. But they can have very strong IRRs. And most of those little companies, get their invested capital back within the first year. But obviously probably any number of them could not survive the first year. So the key idea for equity type of investment is that your upside is reasonably high, which means that you can tolerate a reasonably le- level of failures, which is inevitable in the sector, and hopefully uh, aggregate the portfolio return is actually quite strong and is also very diversified and uncorrelated. A barbershop in Jiangsu has very little to do with a mechanics shop in Guangdong. So if we are able to put together huge numbers of this little investment, but in equity in nature, that works, then that backs the next question. How do you make equity investment in all these little guys? Just uh, going through shareholder registration is just never going to be cost-effective because we're talking about uh, each investment is in the few 100,000 yuan. So therefore, the product we have come up with is really equity investment in essence, but revenue participation in execution. Essentially, you predetermine sector by sector, partner by partner, what's the profit margin of this business, and then translate your equity entitlement into a percentage of the revenue and directly executed as a revenue participation rights. So we call it a revenue distribution rights. So that's really is why currently all this internet financing does not work. Supply financing does not seem to work. P2P does not seem to work. It's fundamentally because the money is from the banks. The product is a credit product. It's just not gonna work.
0: Well, I guess I must ask you about regulations at this stage. Uh, The risk of regulatory surprises in China are are currently top of mind for investors, uh, given the very high-profile crackdown on internet-oriented technology enterprises, private education firms, and, and overseas listings that's been taking place in, in recent weeks. You know, These moves are all preceded by a multi-year crackdown on online microfinancing platforms. I guess the natural question for you at this stage is, you know, how are you interpreting uh, these regulatory developments? And importantly, do you think it has any implications uh, for MicroConnect?
1: I will talk about how to read and how I look at all this uh, regulatory crackdowns, if you use that word, just on its potential impact on us. We think we're completely different from all the previous examples of uh, spectacular failures in microfinance areas, whether through fintech or whether through Internet. I think the fundamental mistake that has been made in those experiments are very simple, too. One, the source of funding is wrong. Two, the destination funding is wrong. Because when your macrofinance model source of funding is from the banks or from ABS, you know, asset-backed security investors, which is the public investors, there's one common feature of those funding. They basically are all under the sovereign faith and credit of China, because that's essentially all public money. Which means that if you fails in small amount, probably okay, but if there is a such a large scale risk that is being created that could become systematic, then the government crackdown is just inevitable. As we already said, credit, product, bank's money for this sort of uh, uh, sector is just the wrong place because the risk is just too high for them and the upside it has nothing to do with them. So that's really one reason the regulator will ultimately put capital adequacy as a key measure for people to take that kind of money to places. Second is, is the destination of funding, whether you talk about internet finance, whether you talk about all this uh, fintech that is essentially allowing small banks, essentially outsourcing their risk management function to all this magic data that all the platforms seems to have. And then when you put that destination to consumer credit, particularly subprime sectors like young kids who have no income, you know that sort of funding, once you are developing in massive scale, is going to be a big problem. And also for SME sector, the money you give it to them, ultimately, in order to justify the perceived risk in the sector, you added up the interest rate. So it's almost become a shock loan financing kind of a scheme, precisely where the sector couldn't afford to pay, and you're the one who are giving them the highest interest rate. That really reinforced the mutual vicious cycle. So ours, as I said, is investment. So from both an investing investor's funding perspective and also from a destination perspective, it's fundamentally different. It's highly consistent with what the government's directions are. But we didn't do this because we somehow read it right. We actually started this whole process long before this become popular and fashionable. So I don't really feel that this has anything to do with us. But in terms of the, the crackdown, I actually don't know why people think uh, we are completely surprised. I do think people should legitimately be surprised by the pace of it by the speed and probably the timing and you know, almost uh, without uh, a whole lot of uh, deliberation, specific deliberation or consultation. But people see this coming. The US has been talking about cracking down on monopolistic and data abuses by the big internet giants for years. And China has been talking about it. So we all know it's coming. I guess one thing people probably do not fully appreciate is that when China finally sets in mind to do something, it will actually get it done. But people could argue that you could have done it with greater sensitivity, could have done it with greater deliberation, and all of that. But I think uh, for people to believe that if you can monopolize everything, or if you can just uh, using strong competitive uh, positions to consolidate into a leading position, and then be able to go back and charge, a higher rate in order to recoup all the investment you have made in getting into that dominant position, that game is not going to happen in China. I think it's just become abundantly clear today, but I would argue that we should have always known that would not happen in China. Just look at what happens with all the payment system. The payment system was developed completely by the private sector without any real explicit government support or government interference. But when they become so big, it's almost become public utility. So today, even though we are still all using the predominant private payment systems, in many ways they already become part of the governmental financial infrastructure. It's becoming toll roads. You can't really charge anything you it, even though you are already controlling it. Theoretically you could, you can't. And the government won't allow you, even though the government didn't own you. But when you become so big, and so predominant in everybody's daily life, I think people will start realizing that your public function is becoming such that you can't operate like a completely private company anymore.
0: For what it's worth, what we've argued here at Fitch following all these recent developments is that you know, basically there are certainly uh, legitimate economic and regulatory considerations at play here. Uh, it's a very long list. National security, there's perhaps a a pace of regulation that hasn't kept with the rapid development of, of some of these uh, enterprises. But we've also made the point that it's been executed in a very abrupt way and that that could potentially increase the quote-unquote regulatory risk premium that global investors require for investing in, in Chinese securities. I, mean, I don't know if you, uh, if you have a view on that, yeah, I do think uh, it's not something that the government is completely
1: ignorant of. I don't also think they deliberately choose to recklessly disregard it. At the end of the day, is the trade-off because unlike in the Western market, the advance of this big new technology development is always meeting with very strong incumbent resistance from the vested uh, traditional industries, whether that's in finance or retail or any other service sectors, and medical uh, in particular. So therefore, there is a natural check and balance in the Western market. They are unlikely going to be very dominant very quickly uh, in the Western market. So therefore, the need for very fast, violent governmental and regulatory action is also mitigated because you don't really need it because there's a natural pushback from the traditional invested interest in many of these sectors. China is a developing economy. In many of those sectors, there was very little traditional incumbents that are dominating in any of the sectors. And the service sectors are horrendously... Inadequate and poor, uh, you know, whether in finance and retail. As a result, the new form of doing business, the new form of technology, are so rapidly changing everything that you can accumulate into dominant positions very, very easily. But you're fighting with each other to get there, rather than fighting a very deep entrenched, uh, you know, incumbent invested interest. So as a result. You know, when capital start to fund all these competitive players and finally allow one or two to become dominant and a lot of capital get pulled into it. But the psyche is that uh, you are able to dominate a sector very, very quickly. In the absence of any incumbent checks and balances, government is the only last resort for this not to become excessively harmful to the society, to the economy and all of that. So as a result, the government is the only action, but when government act, it does not act generally like economic players. It has a process and it has politics in it and it has many other things in there. So when they make a decision, it was not incremental. It was more like, oh, things become serious enough that calls for governmental deliberation and action. And when a decision is made, the action comes. I think that uh, there is this element of uh, the lack of a natural pushback. So as a result, government has to become the only resort, but when government become the resort, the instrument tend to be
0: more broad. Well, thanks for that interesting insights on these latest current events. If we pivot back to SMEs and micro specifically, I, mean, I guess one takeaway from your previous comment just recapping this thing on regulation is that because of the type of investment that you're hoping to harness, you're probably not at the risk of exacerbating financial risks. So that's probably, I think, something conducive. And the second part I think that you mentioned is some of these social implications. I've certainly put together some of these charts where if you look at the indebtedness of China's household sector, you can see that it's actually some of the poorest households that have taken on the greatest amount of debt. Clearly, that's a a huge regulatory consideration Mm -hmm. for the PBOC and others that are involved here. And it sounds like because you're facilitating investments, uh, you're probably also not seeking to exacerbate those problems. Uh, But maybe if we just dive in a little bit, I would be keen to understand a little bit about the types of enterprises that you are hoping to fund uh, through MicroConnect. Yeah, I think the key is to find the source of funding that can fend
1: themselves. So if we are not able to make this compelling, global institution investors wouldn't would just ignore us. And if they do make investment, and they would do it you know, with their eyes open. So therefore, this is not going to be from a government policy perspective. Is never going to create any issues for the financial sector of China. And you also mentioned this sort of funding is much more friendly for the little guy. So therefore, help the little guy beef up their balance sheet first before they can really take on anything into the future in terms of credit. In terms of the actual sector, we have become so encouraged that uh, sectors that were never in my mind uh, to be covered by traditional finance, you know, can actually finally be accessed. For example, barbershops. How can you possibly say, you know, barbershop could be an investment, uh, you know, underlying? Yes and they are very, very profitable. And for every 2,000 people, there is absolute need for one barbershop. And when you have all these new communities, urbanizations that are being built, you need so many more and more and more. When you build a big apartment complex, you need one, and then very quickly you need two, and you need three, and you need four. All these people currently are all funded by their own money, by their family uh, holdings, by their, uh, you know, borrow from friends and family unless they're able to get their money back within the first year, nobody wants to invest their own money that way. So a lot of those guys actually will get their money in the first year, but quite a bit of them will not survive the first year. So you wanted to really invest in enough numbers to make this work. Mechanics. You would say, you now how, how, how can you fund little mechanics? Well, clearly today when you go and fix your car, you don't really just drive your car into a mechanics and uh, randomly, you go to an app. The app tells you in your neighborhood, you tell what's the problem with your car and then the app will direct you to a particular mechanics. The mechanics are just a bunch of guys working. They don't have any money to store any essential parts or anything like that, inventory. It's all inventories, so the app, will essentially ask you to choose which, what sort of a part you want to buy from which part. And everything is done online. And then the parts will sent from where is the most economically stored into the right mechanics in real time, real quickly. So all of this is done digitally in terms of the actual financial relationship between the parts holder, the suppliers, the auto shops, and in the mechanics. And they're all connected through a digital web The mechanics actually work for this shop, and tomorrow I can work for another shop. I'm not going to really run into all the economic discussions about how I'm going to get paid. Everything is paid on a job. The job is directly all settled in the ERP system of the mechanics because the money comes from the center. And so therefore we can fund the mechanics, but our partner is the franchisor who is the the app runner and the app runner collects all the money from the customers and then distribute it to the parts and to the mechanics and to this and that. And we are the one who, if we invest investor, then part of the money will come back to our pocket. So that's mechanics, restaurants, barbershops, pharmacies, convenience stores, and also
0: neighborhood vegetable uh, kind of a sell stands. How are you going to find these companies? I'm just thinking just a, an image popped into my head just now of they in the, hundreds the huge of thousands. huge manpower that you might need yes. to actually no. find the new
1: developments uh, no. find the barber- correct no. we will never be able to do that so the whole idea is that you have a digital network and it's almost like a net you know a fish net you go to what we call a leading enterprise that control a part of that net so we call it connect and collect partners who basically Each one of them operate within a particular network. The three types of uh, partners that we will be looking who will help us find all these little guys and collect from these little guys. One, the first type is platform companies. You know, like Meituan, Alibaba, Tencent. They are all doing business with millions of people. So they could be our partners. But more relevant immediately are franchisors. When a franchise, whether that's a restaurant, whether that's mechanics, whether that's any other type of uh, uh, retail, we work with the franchisor. The franchisors, you know, wanted to add, they know how they want to expand, how many new franchisees they want to add. They also know who should they be hired as their franchisee operator. And then they are the one who basically, if we like what they do, if we think their standard selection of franchisees is acceptable, we'll work with them. So they will be RCC partners. So we will be funding whoever they select to be their franchisees, and then we fund that franchisees, and then they have to collect the money from the franchisees through the center bookings, like little hotels and all of that. The last bit of uh, uh, partners that we have, network partners, is massive number of SARs you know, basically people sell software as a service. So they are the one who actually connected many unfranchised, kind of isolated little guys all over the place. You know, if you go to China, for example, you go to a particular city, they have this walk street, meaning that, you know, you can only walk. They tend to have thousands of restaurants and, uh, you know, all sorts of shops around it. The government usually hire a software company to connect everybody together. Then you work with SR's company. The SARS company knows you know, everybody's everyday data, how much money you're making, how much all the cost structures and all of that. So we use that as a way to determine who we want it to. Then they're becoming our multi-managers. So essentially, if we make an investment and then we share everything with them, so they basically build a network of their own ecosystem. We provide money for them to push down there and then collect it back there. We enable them to monetize the, the network they built, and they love it. And we essentially don't have to hire 500,000 people to go around and try to pedal our products. These
0: are our network. As we've progressed through this conversation, I know there there's certainly differences, but the most immediate parallel that springs to mind currently in practice around the world is this concept of impact investing, which basically seeks to empower entrepreneurs and support SMEs in developing countries most of these impact investing ventures are not profit-seeking and are done on concessional terms through NGOs or multilateral institutions like the IFC arm of the World Bank. So I guess the, the question for you is, you know, given the higher credit risk profile of SMEs and the manpower uh, that might be required, you know, what gives you the confidence that you can do this type of venture on a profit-seeking basis in the case of China?
1: Yeah, I think I would like people to think that ultimately we are an impact investor because the investment we make do create great positive impact. But that's not why we're here. We didn't come here because we think we're you know, we impact investors and so are we are ESG investors so that people need to really believe in what we do. No, we are here because we want to bring very solid returns for investors. And uh, people don't sometimes underestimate the foundation of traditional finance is the big number rules. When you have enough of a number, we are basically like insurance companies in reverse. We are investing in each individual small little company, uh, restaurant is not worth investing. But if you are able to deploy huge numbers of them, then the numbers start to work
0: magics. Thank you very much, Charles, for being here today. Uh, It's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you. Thank you. It's a great pleasure. And uh, hopefully one day we'll be able to work together on this new adventure. You've been listening to Fitch Ratings China Perspectives podcast. To learn more about our ratings and research on China, please visit us at FitchRatings.com. Please subscribe via iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take care and until next time.